Hello and welcome to episode 59 of the Talk Witchcraft podcast. In this episode, Erica and I will be talking about witchcraft communities and boundaries. You're listening to Talk Witchcraft. On this podcast, we talk about witchcraft as a lifestyle and discover how to merge magic into your daily life. Every week, we'll demystify witchy topics like tarot, astrology, crystals, herbs, and more as you develop your personal brand of magic and create the life of your dreams. We're your hosts, the Mystic Sisters, Erica and Maggie. In this segment of the show, we choose a tarot card for the week and we look for moments that relate to this card in our daily lives. For this episode, we chose the Seven of Swords. The theme of this card is manipulation. When we look at the Rider Waite Smith version of the Seven of Swords, it is very clear that this guy thinks he's getting away with stealing these swords. Since we know the swords have to do with intellect, We can assume that this is a liar and he uses words to manipulate. What's interesting is he's dressed very nicely. He has a fur-lined hat and fur-lined boots. So it's not that he has a need for these swords. He's stealing just for the sake of stealing. That's part of what makes me think it's a manipulative liar and not someone who is telling a white lie. Adding to that is the fact that it is broad daylight, yet he is tiptoeing. That's really interesting that he is sneaking in the least sneaky time. This is someone who is lying right to your face and everybody knows it's a lie. So I think the key here is that this person is getting away with this for now. Eventually, this lie will catch up to him. So Erica, do you have a story about a time that someone stole your idea and claimed it was their own or someone who lied right to your face and tried to gaslight you into believing them or maybe a time where you were this person? Okay, so my story involves my dear, wonderful little sister who is so trusting. When we were much younger, she had done something that little sisters do that I can't even remember what it was, but it made me mad. And I went up to my room and I wrote very forcefully, I love Maggie, not. (laughs) Because I just learned really what that meant, what not like that negative word meant that it was in its own way. Like I love her, but not really. I'm mad at her. (laughs) Sarcasm was newly developed. Hours or days later, when that anger had subsided, Maggie found that written note. And she was just at the age where she was beginning to learn how to read. And she recognized her name. And she said, what does this mean? Why did you write my name? And I felt terrible. because that anchor was no longer there. And so I said, it means I love Maggie very much. (laughs) And we gave each other hugs and we were very happy and everything was hunky-dory. So I thought until sweet, kind little Maggie was writing thank you letters for Christmas gifts or birthday gifts. I can't remember exactly what time of the year it was to our great grandmother. And in her note, she wrote, I love nanny, not. (laughs) (laughs) Thinking that it meant the lie that I had told her, which was that she loved nanny very, very much. My mom, thankfully, was looking at the notes before she mailed them off and found 
what Maggie had written and called Maggie into the room and said that, you know, like, well, why did you write this? And she burst immediately into tears and said, but Erica said it meant very much. And then of course I got in trouble. (laughs) (laughs) We got away with it for a little bit. (laughs) Then it caught up to you. (laughs) And then it caught up to me. (laughs) And I, and that is my mom's most cherished story of her two daughters because it just encapsulates everything there is about sisterly relationships. Yep. (laughs) Trust, anger, annoying, (laughs) love. Love, lots and lots of love. (laughs) What about you, Maggie? (laughs) That's a good one. Uh, my story is I had a roommate. I'm not the person who's stealing the swords. I'm the person who's having their swords stolen from them in this story. But I had a roommate who was constantly gaslighting me all the time. That was all she would ever do to me. I would think that I'd figure out the system and what was going to make her happy. And then it would change. Then she would change it. And then I had broken the rules and I was the worst person she'd ever lived with. It was constant. Like, the toaster belongs right here. Stop moving the toaster. Okay. I won't move the toaster. And then it's moved somewhere else. And then I'm in trouble for moving it, but I'm not the one who moved it. It was, I don't know, (laughs) but it was things like that all the time. Like the bathroom door should always be open. No, the bathroom door has to always be closed. I mean, it's the worst. They can be. I've had a lot of really good roommates though, too. I know. And I have really great roommates right now, but (laughs) housemates, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) Actually, I've had quite a few gaslighty roommates, too. People who, like, tell me things are fine, and then suddenly they're not fine, and the whole time they've just been so mad at me. (laughs) And I'm like, Mm -hmm. oh, I thought we were friends, but now we're not. Mm -hmm. I think there's probably some of my, like, neurodivergent stuff happening there where I just, like, don't understand social cues. So that could be part Mm -hmm. of it, just doing some self-reflection. But Mm -hmm. that shouldn't be enough to, like, be constantly in trouble and have someone just, like, hate you without telling you. Exactly. If you have a story that you want to share with us about the Seven of Swords, please send us voicemail to we listen at talkwitchcraft.com. Now, as we mentioned at the beginning, today we are going to talk about belonging to witchy communities. As a witch, belonging to a community of witches can be very important to your practice because this is where you will learn about your craft as you grow as a witch. At the same time, you need to be aware of the dangers within the spiritual community. So be sure to do your research before joining any group and ensure their beliefs align with your own values. So let's start with some definitions as usual. Erica, tell us what a community is. Community provides us with support and encouragement. We can seek out people who have similar values, interests, and concerns about the things that we care about on an individual level. We then receive support when we feel hopeless or misunderstood, and we can receive encouragement about ideas and actions. And that helps us to remain properly directed when it comes to the things that we care about. If we start taking detours away from our goals, there are people who are there to remind us about them. When we become unfocused or lost, there are people there to help us return to the place that we want to be. In community, We never need to be alone in our sorrow or in our joy. In a community, we become aware of and sensitive to the needs of others, and we are reminded that there is more than just our own conscious awareness of self. So I have developed a number of communities. It's important to have relationships for all your different things that you do. You know, that's part of the polyamory in me. So I have communities for 
the different outlets of my life. Most of them are online or through Facebook groups, but in person, I have my D&D group, which started out from friends of my boyfriends. When my boyfriend and I first started dating, I mentioned that I liked playing D&D, and so he invited me to join the group of his own that he had. So I'm the only girl in this group of guys, which is quite typical of D&D. <laughs> They're very vulgar and crude. And I I love that. So it lets me have that outlet of being loud and boisterous and rude to each other and constantly yelling and being totally a boy. I'm just like, I'm just one of the guys, you know, I, I get to explore that more typical masculine side of myself because everything else about me is very feminine. Being able to be boisterous is really a fun outlet that I haven't had before. Also, having been recently divorced, I finally paid off all of the marital debt that we had, which was part of the divorce decree that I would be taking on that debt. And it, I got it paid off at the end of the year. And so as a celebration of that, I wanted to invite all of my friends who were actively participatory in that process from start to finish that witnessed the change, was supportive of me. And then even some of the new friends that met me during this time period that have become close and dear, wonderful friends. We're having a Erica's divorced and loving it party and I'm making them all dress up and we're doing a murder mystery party and they're going to like it. <laughs> and that's, so those are my communities that I have that are special to me. One community that I have that is really special is the polo community. My husband plays bike polo. Sometimes it was annoying, especially when we first started dating because he would just want to do polo all the time. But over time, I have met some really nice and kind people through that community. And I think the best part about it is basically having friends wherever we go. We can go pretty much anywhere in the country and find people who play. <laughs> and, so, and it's like a ready-made set of friends that you just like join in the fun. When we moved from Portland to St. Pete, it was a huge move and we had such an amazing community of friends in Portland. We still do. They're still our friends. We didn't just like, see ya, bye-bye. <laughs> but um, <laughs> it was really sad to think about leaving those friends behind and not being able to see them every day. We'd have game night pretty much every, at least twice a week. <laughs> we'd, we'd either go to our friend's house or they'd come to ours. And so it was kind of hard thinking about leaving. But then when we moved to St. Pete, there was a, a smaller polo club, so it's a much smaller group of people, but we've become really close with them as well, and we've been able to form new friendships. We have game nights. We go to polo. It's a big event every week <laughs> where we just go hang out, the, out at the park, and I'm lucky because one of the guys who plays with Dana, his wife comes, so we get to hang out and chat <laughs> and talk about our gardens and cooking and the things that we enjoy. Yeah, that's a really special community to me. And then of course, another special community to me is the Mumbles and Things community. I feel like it's also kind. I don't know how else to describe people. That's a big value for me is kindness. And so I feel like those are the kinds of people that I attract. So I think uh, kind is a good way to describe the people who come into Mumbles and Things. I'm also a part of that community. And I agree that everybody is very kind and everybody is 
wanting to help their, the first thought is of helping and not of like shame or you're doing this wrong or it's very much a, well, have you considered this? And it's, it's just nice. It's, they're nice yeah. people. There's a, there's a lot of that like shame and like, this is the only way to do it in a lot of different witchcraft spaces. It's nice to have. I think that that's a common thing that people say about mumbles and things is that there's just everybody's really kind and generous and helpful. So we would advise you to do some self-reflection and find out what your communities are and where your values lie. There's a post that went around that was it was something about like tell your friends that you love them often and frequently or often and I can't remember the other word. Off tell your friends that you love them often, make it weird, reach out to your community and just tell them, "Hey, I love you. You're awesome." <laughs> yeah. It could be like, oh, you mean so much to me. I would just want to thank you for how much you've supported me over the years. It could be something really mushy and cute, or it could just be simple like, hey, I was thinking about you today and I wanted you to know. One specific kind of community that many witches belong to is a coven. And this isn't a requirement to be a witch to join a coven, but it is something that you can do is to join a coven, which is a group of witches who come together regularly for support, education, activism, practice, leadership training, exploration of spirit, and more. Traditionally, the bond of a coven is meant to be closer than family, where individuals can share spirit, emotions, and imaginations through mutual trust and love. This is one of those groups that you could consider a found family, as it were. Sometimes people will compare a coven to a religious organization, but it's it's really a poor comparison. There are as many different belief systems as there are individuals who call themselves witches. And so a witch's coven is formed based on the likes, dislikes, beliefs, and preferences of each member. So therefore, no coven is like an, another, whereas churches tend to do the same types of rituals and synagogues and temples. They all tend to do the same types of things. They might do it differently, but it's it's the same pedagogy, liturgy. What word am I looking for? Anyway, but each coven is really just, I mean, it's just a group of people coming together to share a similar practice, like a quilting bee or a book club or a D&D group. <laughs> yeah. And that's, I think that's the thing too, is that each coven meeting, there might be like an opening and a closing, but the middle part could be different. Just like at a quilting bee, you might be working on a different project or at a book club, you might be reading a different book or at D&D, you're working on a different campaign. But in a church service, you'd have basically the same structure the whole, t the whole way through. And the difference would be like the message of the structure or, you know, like the theme, but there's a set program that you go through mm -hmm. each week. And the secret to a successful coven is often the small size. The traditional coven has 13 witches because of the sacredness of the number 13, but that's not a requirement. You can have anywhere from five to 20. I've even seen covens that were maybe three people. So the small size basically makes it so that the presence or absence of each individual will affect all the other members. And that creates this greater sense of commitment to the coven. In larger groups, one person not being there, you might miss them 
but it won't change the dynamic of the group. And so again, this is the good example of the difference between a religious group. You know, you, you've got your mega churches, you've got hundreds of people in attendance, even in smaller churches or temples or whatever, you know, upwards of 50 people. Whereas in these D&D groups, it's a campaign of five or a, a book club, there might be 12 people or, you know, so the smaller the group, the more intertwined intimate. and yeah, the more intimate, it's a different dynamic of the interactions between people. Yeah. And I think that's probably why many like churches or religious organizations have smaller group sessions where they have like Bible study or, you know, youth group or just the younger people. So there's like an opportunity to make those deeper connections with a smaller group outside of the big group. Additionally, covens are unique because there is generally no singular leader, guru, or hierarchical authority of spirit. Depending on the tradition followed by the coven, leadership may and probably will change over time. One meeting may be led by one witch and the next meeting led by another or which may take up a leadership for a full month, quarter, or year. So it's constantly changing and people are going in and out of that role of leadership. It could be brought to a vote or a witch could ask to be the leader and approved by the coven, or they may be appointed to be the next leader by the previous leader. It really depends on the preference of the group. So I think that's an important part of covens or witchcraft groups in general, if you don't want to call it a coven, is that leadership is part of the group membership. Learning how to both lead and follow is part of that community that you're building. So there's not just some, some covens do have like one high priestess or something like that. And that person is the leader forever. But I think that's more rare, actually, than like kind of a changing leadership structure. And with any group, I think too, you need somebody who's kind of directing it, who's making the schedule, who's saying, hey, let's get together on this date. And you, so you can have that kind of administrative leader that's kind of always in charge. But during the actual ritual and event, having that ebb and flow really is of of who's in charge who's leading the part is is really key. Yeah, it adds a lot more to the experience I feel like because you're getting a lot of different perspectives so you can learn from one another and as we'll talk about after our ad break it helps to protect the group from becoming like a cult type of situation where one leader becomes all powerful. If you are interested in learning more about how to structure your coven or start one up, Starhawk has a book called The Spiral Dance, which has a lot of really great information on how to get these covens going, as well as some ideas for different rituals you can do. At Best in Glass Chalices, we know your ceremonial drinking vessel is more than just a container. Your chalice is a special goblet for magical workings. All our chalices are made from food-safe materials with options ranging from precious metal to gemstone to pottery. You will find many styles to suit your preferences. Whether you're looking for an ornately decorated design encrusted with jewels or a simple and casual cup for everyday use. Stop in the shop today to discover your new chalice. We're located at exit 57 in the shopping center with the pet pen. Now back to your regularly scheduled programming. 
So we've been talking a lot about community and what it means to belong to a community, but you also want to protect yourself from harmful ideology and cult indoctrination. I think most people probably think of spiritual cults when they hear the word cult, and that is why we're talking about it on this podcast. However, it's important to know that the content of the cult is not what makes it a cult. Cults can be spiritual, or political, economic, militaristic, therapeutic, about self-help, or really anything else. The mechanisms are what make it a cult, and the content of the cult is only a distraction. Let's define the word. Here is the classic definition of the word cult. A group or movement that exhibits great or excessive devotion or dedication to some person, thing, or idea. And... A group or movement that employs unethical, manipulative, or coercive techniques of persuasion and control. For example, isolation from former friends and family, debilitation, use of special methods to heighten suggestibility and subservience, powerful group pressures, information management, suspension of individuality or critical judgment, promotion of total dependency on the group, and a fear of leaving it. And it's also a group or movement that is designed to advance the goals of the group's leaders to the actual or possible detriment of members, their families, or the community. And I think there's something else that's important to remember, and that is that no one sets out to join a cult. Nobody does this on purpose. No one sets out to belong to a group that could harm them or their loved ones. I think when learning about cults, people will often say something like, how could those people be so stupid? Like with the Nexium thing that came out, everyone was chastising those people and saying they were dumb for even joining it or any other of any of the other cults that we hear about. The Moonies, Jonestown, everything that you hear about, people are often like, how could those people be so stupid? Or that would never happen to me. But like I said, nobody is choosing freely to be indoctrinated and exploited. They, the influence of the cult happens really gradually and deliberately, and it could happen to anybody. You do hear about people who have left cults talking about how they can't believe that they fell for it or how it, they don't understand how it happened. There's always this kind of state of shock that they go through as they are being unindoctrinated. So it's very subtle. It is not like, hey, I'm going to go join the Moonies today. <laughs> right. It happens through a series of deliberate steps that the group has figured out how to bring more people in so that those people can be exploited for labor, for finances, or anything else. And that's why we wanted to give you some tips for assessing a group and you're able to keep yourself safe from joining a group in the spiritual world that might be a cult. So the first method is called the bite model. This is a helpful tool for researching cults and bite is an acronym for behavior control, information control, thought control, and emotional control. Stephen Hassan developed the bite model to assess a group and determine if it is a cult. He was once in the Moonies cult or the Unification Church, and now he works as a cult deprogrammer to help people leave harmful people and groups just like he was able to do. So the first thing, the B. If the group 
promotes dependence and obedience, uses punishments or rewards for behavior, dictates where you live and who you live with, controls how you dress or style your hair, regulates your diet, restricts your sleep and other activities, or exploits you financially, they are exhibiting behavior control. And the I, if the group withholds or distorts information, forbids you from talking to critics or ex-members, segregates sources of information to insider and outsider, uses propaganda, requires you to report your thoughts and feelings, and then uses your confessions against you, gaslights you, or encourages spying on other members, they are exhibiting information control. The T is if a group creates a dichotomy between good and evil or us versus them, asks you to change your identity or name, promotes thought-stopping techniques to prevent critical thought, allows only positive thoughts or rejects rational analysis or doubt. These are examples of thought control. And finally, E, if the group instills fear to prevent you from leaving the group, teaches that happiness is only found within the group, labels some emotions as wrong, teaches emotion-stopping techniques to prevent those emotions, creates situations where you feel the emotions that they label as wrong, showers you with praise and attention, or threatens your family and friends, they are exhibiting emotional control. You know, as you hear some of these things, these are just red flags. And the more red flags that you get, the more likely you're in a cult. There are some groups that do do these things, but it's only a few here and there, and they're not a big deal, such as how to dress and style your hair is common amongst some religious organizations, or um, changing your name might be a fun thing that you do in a sorority or a coven as a like part of being like, it's a special name for that group, but it's not like a legal change and you're not changing your identity. It's just a fun thing that you're doing with the group. So the key is some of these things may occur within groups, but if you're getting more and more and more of them and you're trying you're having to do things often and are feeling manipulated or gaslit, that's when those red flags need to be paid attention to. Right. I think the key is that in like a sorority or something where you choose a name or in German club, we chose German names and that was a fun thing to do. But some people didn't want to. They wanted to keep their name. And if you're being forced to choose a name versus being part of the group and doing it for fun because it makes you feel good, Like that's the difference. Mm -hmm. Having to change your name or having a new name assigned to you versus choosing one because it's a fun thing to do to belong. So just keep an eye out for these types of things, things that make you feel uncomfortable, things that are not your free will, and that can help keep you safe from this cult indoctrination stuff. And I do also want to say that if you are feeling like you can't leave a a a group or you're fearing fearful for yourself or your family, you can get out. You can leave. It is possible. It might be hard. There are deprogrammers out there in the world who can help you with this kind of situation if you're in that deeply. Or if you if you're listening and you know somebody who's in a cult or you're recognizing these for someone that you care about and you want to help them out, research people like Stephen Hassan. I mean, he's like a famous person, so he might not be able to help you, but you might have like a, a, a different person locally who can help you 
who is a D programmer. Basically, the, the way he was able to get out of his cult was he just happened to break his leg and his family kept him at home because they needed to keep, take care of him. And so he was kind of lucky in that situation because he didn't want to be there. But because of that situation, he he was forced to be away from them. And that like cleared his mind enough to realize that he was being manipulated. Yep. So sometimes it just takes like being taken away from the group for a little while, having the opportunity to re- reset your mind. So another tool is called the Influence Spectrum, which was also made by Stephen Hassan. And it helps you identify whether the things that you are learning are constructive and healthy or destructive and unhealthy. In general, we are influenced by all sorts of things from the moment that we are born. Parents, guardians, teachers, religious and spiritual leaders, friends, family members, clubs, memberships, political party, the list goes on and on and on. And they all influence how we grow. So Sometimes these influences help us to develop into independent, fulfilled adults, and other times they create dependence and obedience. This particular tool is broken up into three separate categories, the individual, the leader, and then the group as the whole, and shows the things that are on either side of the spectrum. So if we look at the individuals on the constructive and healthy end, the person is being their authentic self, experiencing and giving unconditional love having compassion towards others regardless of group membership, and having a conscience, creativity, humor, free will, and the ability to think critically. And on the destructive and unhealthy side, the person is acting out of false identity. They're treating love as conditional, hating people outside of their group, spreading and following a doctrine. They might be full of fear and guilt and is dependent on and obedient to the group. So observe yourself and other group members to determine where they fall on that spectrum. So if the majority of people are on that destructive, unhealthy side, you're seeing a lot of people who are acting out a false identity or that their love is conditional based on your behavior, or there's a lot of hate being spewed toward people who aren't in the group. If you're seeing that pretty is very common, that might be an unhealthy destructive group that you're involved in and it would be good to get out. I think the most common way for people to begin to be involved in a cult is through the process of love bombing. And so at the beginning, it feels like it's a very supportive group of people. And that kind of pulls you into it because you're, you're feel like you're being so supported and loved and then you're in it. (laughs) And so Mm. keeping an eye out for that, that the praise that you're getting is deserved and that there's a balance of constructive criticism, answering your questions honestly, not always telling you that you're perfect and wonderful <laughs> because mm-hmm. cuz you're not perfect and wonderful all the time. But I mean, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and that we make mistakes and if somebody is like not holding you accountable for your mistakes and just like putting you up on a pedestal, then that can be a red flag. So on the leader side of things, a healthy constructive leader is psychologically healthy, knows their limits, empowers individuals, is trustworthy, and is accountable for their mistakes. They're not overreaching their boundaries. They know where their influence ends. We talked about in the covens that there might be a leader, like a high priestess who's in charge of the administrative stuff, but she's encouraging other members to lead different parts of the rituals. That would be an example of a healthy, constructive leader. Then on the destructive, unhealthy side is a person who is narcissistic or even psychopathic. 
they act elitist and grandiose, they seek power hungrily, and they tend to be secretive or deceptive and claim absolute authority over the group. So in contrast to being accountable to their actions, this is somebody who is not willing to see that they've made a mistake or take responsibility for that mistake, own up to it. There's somebody who is constantly looking for new ways to hold power over somebody. They see themselves as above the group and not part of the group. So observing the leader of the group will help you determine where they fall on the spectrum and whether they are healthy and constructive or unhealthy and destructive. And then for the organization as a whole, you will find egalitarianism, checks and balances, informed consent, individuality and diversity, and freedom and encouragement on the healthy, constructive side of the spectrum. So you can see that People are free to express themselves how they want to, that there's maybe a leader, but there's people who are checking in on the leader and making sure that they're not overstepping their boundary. There's those checks and balances. And on the unhealthy and destructive side, you'll find elitism, authoritative structure and hier hierarchy, deception and manipulation, clones of people, preservation of power and restriction and control. Basically, all this boils down to is that we don't want you to think that every group is going to be a cult because that's not true. But when you are joining groups, as you're starting to become more involved with it, take a healthy intro and extrospection of, I don't think that's a word, um, but <laughs> think, look at yourself and what is happening to you and look at the group and group members and leader and the organization as a whole to make sure that it aligns with your values and is a healthy space for you to continue to grow that is building you up and not a place that is breaking you down. So now we will talk about our herb of the week and this episode is brought to you by Yarrow. So I will start by telling you about the medicinal properties and then Maggie will share the magical ones. Yarrow, its Latin name is Achillea millifolium. It is a bushy plant with lots of stems that kind of shoot out. And the head of the flower has lots of little flowers on top of it. And it makes this kind of disc shape on the top. They are usually bright yellow in color and white and pink. You want to harvest the flowers and the leaves when it is in full bloom. Usually you want to do it after the dew has dried on it. So it's not wet, but before the sun's heat has evaporated any of the essential oils out. So it's a very fine moment in the morning when you can get that done. It has a lot of good properties to it. It is antifungal, anti-inflammatory. It is used as an astringent as an antiseptic at times. It can be used for any sort of bleeding, whether internally or externally. Um, and with that internal bleeding, we get bruising. So it's really good for helping to reduce bruising. And it's great to help stop nosebleeds. You can just stick a whole poultice of yarrow up inside your nose. Be careful, don't send it up too far, but it can help to absorb that wonderful nosebleed situation. <laughs> 
It's also really good for menstrual bleeding if you are having a lot of excessive menstrual bleeding. So it can be taken as a tea, either hot or cold to help with that. Also because of its use in the circulatory system, it can help with uh, hemorrhoids or varicose veins and blood blisters to help relieve and shrink that. It can also help stop bleeding for ulcers. If you drink it hot, it can increase the body heat to help to break a fever. You know, that seems a little counterintuitive, but that's just how fevers work. So if you have a fever, you want to actually make yourself more warm because it helps to move the process of that the fever is doing along and more quickly so that you don't have to have the fever as long. So it's good as a tea usually and as a tincture and some safety considerations is that overuse can dry out your system because it it's very much that absorbent. Um, if you think about it with stopping the bleeding, it's, it's trying to absorb all of these fluids from you to stop it. So if you use it a lot, it can dry out other areas as well. And so don't use too much of it too often. And then as always with the Asteraceae plant family, the the daisies, there is some caution with allergies for that family. So just be cautious with it. Yarrow is a passive herb that corresponds with Venus and Saturn, water and earth, and Leo and Aquarius. It is most common to use it as a love herb. So include it in hand fasting and wedding bouquets or as decoration and add it to spells for increasing love between two romantic partners. It can also be used for divination. For one thing, it opens up the psychic pathways and helps you to receive intuitive messages from the divine. And at the same time, it can act as a ward against any unwanted energies that may be trying to interfere with those divine messages. Create a spell before practicing divination to protect you and to help you receive those messages better and use Yarrow in them. It can also just be used for general protection, so growing it on your property or in flower pots in your apartment, however you live, can be protective. And finally, it is used for courage and confidence. So the main piece of it is that it helps you to overcome your fears more than it helps you to be more courageous and confident. But those kind of go together. If you overcome your fear, then you'll probably be more courageous. If you carry it in a charm bag that has the intention of banishing your fears of failure and encouraging your abilities, that's one way to use it. You could also create a spell using Yarrow where your intention is to remove the fears and overcome them. Next week, Erica and I will be looking for examples of the Knight of Cups in our lives. This card is about idealization, emotional sensitivity, being in love with love. It's an invitation to love and romantic overflow. This is a person who is like the knight in shining armor. Of all the knights, this is the knightiest. So it's about coming to the rescue emotionally, dashing off to rescue someone, being really exaggerated in the way that you feel, loving beauty, but not liking any sort of imperfection and being really imaginative, but unrealistic. So we'll be looking for people who are like this in our lives or times that we felt like we were the Knight of Cups and we invite you to do the same. So look for the Knight of Cups in your life and share us a voicemail to we listen at talkwitchcraft.com. 
You can find out more about this episode by going to mumblesandthings.com slash blog slash 059. Join us next week when we talk about making the most of Pisces season. Make sure that you subscribe so that you are notified about each new episode. And to help other witches find this show, please leave us a five-star review. So this review, the title is Well-Organized Support for Witches, and it's from ELL Teacher in Maine. Really well-organized episodes. Maggie and Erica are natural teachers. For a beginner witch searching for useful podcasts like me, this one is a gem. Yay! Thank you! Thank you, ELL Teacher in Maine. You can also find us on Instagram at Mumbles and Things. And if you have any other tips to add, tell us about it in the Talk Witchcraft Forum in the Mumbles Academy community. And don't forget to share this episode with your other witchy friends and followers. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye. Chug a little Choppy chalice. <laughs> Choo-choo chiboogie chalice. <laughs> <laughs> How about wine you like chalice shop? What? <laughs> no. Are you on goblet punpedia? No, I'm on chalice puns. Challenge. Nonchalant. Nonchalant chalices. <laughs> magic gulp. Magic gulp chalices. <laughs> magic. No? I don't know. <laughs> I have to let it marinate. I want to see all of the options. Best in glass chalices. Okay. <laughs> or a glass act. Best okay. in glass is better. Best in glass.